At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here on the Trillions and Absolute Magician Podcast Network. I'm your host, John Casillo, and with me again is Dan Lyon. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Finding Day Eve. <laughs> As I just noticed the uh, email strand when I got back, I'm very much looking forward to writing about these kids, which sounds really creepy on its face, but... <laughs> But in reality, <laughs> uh, it won't be. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a little bit off of uh, a little less crazy for me than a couple years ago when I spent pretty much all night writing, pre-writing all the articles. Uh, now that we're dividing them up a little bit better this year, which is nice. <laughs> the uh, the benefits of an expanded staff. We have we have people to do things now. Yes. Right now, I'm trying to hunt down all these kids' uh, Twitter names. Totally not creepy. Like Nothing. Not <laughs> <laughs> These are all either 18-year-old adults or 17-year-old turning 18-year-old adults by the time they get to school. No worries. None at all. And for the most part, it seems like they're they're pretty good at football this year, which is not something we could always say about these Syracuse classes. I'm I'm a big fan, personally, because... You know, it's it's been so long since we actually had, like, a legitimate class. I mean, as much as we derided, like, you know, Greg Robinson's time with the program, you know, the first couple of years weren't awful in terms of, like, overall numbers, but obviously, like, between attrition, the actual quality of those players, and then the, uh, the small, like, poorly regarded classes that followed, Obviously, like things kind of went south very quickly. Um, Pasqualoni's last few classes were kind of falling off as well, but like we really haven't had a class like this in what a decade, Dan. I know you kind of follow this much, much better than I do. It's hard to say because the way that uh, that these things have been tracked has gotten so much more. Um, I wouldn't say accurate necessarily, but there's just so much more in terms of the recruiting. Uh, fought, like people who follow it and people who dedicate themselves to it now. So it, it's it's hard to say like how good the Pasqualoni classes were, um, and even the first couple Robinson ones. Uh, like the first years that you can really find on the database on any of the databases are like is like 2002, and like even then, so many kids just didn't get rated or didn't get evaluated that it was hard to really make a judgment. So now that we have like four dedicated websites to it. Um, there's fewer kids that slip through the cracks, like a Jay Bromley, or a, which you know it was only four years ago. So it's pretty crazy how far it's come. Um, but in terms of like the the modern times, or at least since I've been following recruiting, which is you know this is probably like the sixth year I've really paid attention to. This is, in my humble opinion, by far the best class that we've brought in. Um, you know, three or four kids, depending on what site you look at are four stars. Almost all of them are, are at least a three-star or could be considered a three-star depending on where you look. Um, almost all of them have high BCS offers outside of Syracuse, usually SEC or Big Ten, depending on if they're like an Illinois kid or a Florida kid. Um, very fo- You could see where the focuses of the staff were. Um, it's just a really impressive class all around, and it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, looking at the numbers in Ellen Rivals, uh, right now we're ranked 52nd, which is huge. And, and I, I think beyond that, you know, which is kind of a subjective number to begin with, what I'm more concerned about is where we kind of stack up compared to, you know, peer institutions and institutions in the area. And, um, you know, obviously, like, um, Penn State kind of comes in um, around 21, which, you know, a lot of that's riding the uh, James Franklin wave since he left Vanderbilt and took us 
took several recruits with him. But beyond that, I mean, um, you know, we're looking at peer institutions. UVA has kind of fallen down the ladder a little bit since, you know, yet another you know, just bad campaign. DC is ranked around 40 right now. Pitt's at 42. Louisville's at 46. But then, you know, SU comes in at 52 ahead of the State University of New Jersey. Um, right now ahead of Duke, so that could change. Uh, Wake Forest is a huge class coming in, so really lacking kind of that, like, um, you know, crown jewel recruit, and they're coming in, like, right behind us. We're not falling behind MAC programs as much. Um, I mean, all the, out of all the schools in the Northeast, we're kind of right there. We're ahead of, you know, Big Ten bound, Maryland. We're ahead of Vanderbilt. I, I personally, like, I, I doubt it could go much better than, than it looks right now, and, and I know as you'll get into, um, especially at wide receiver, where, you know, a position that's really kind of lacked for several years, beyond Alec Lemon, who was kind of a rock for his entire tenure, um, but it seems like we're really improving in that area, especially, and really could have, you know, a lot of guys to catch the ball um, coming out of, whether it's Terrell Hunt's hands or A.J. Long's hands. Absolutely, um, and and it's just uh, it feels like even if you look at one site and a kid isn't rated very high, like it seems like every kid at least gets a strong evaluation somewhere. Which you know, at the end of the day, who knows how much it actually matters? But there's no kid that is just seems like a total reach across the board. Um, like I think our probably our lowest rated recruit is maybe Juwan Dowles, who had who committed a couple weeks ago. He's from Florida and he's like that undersized corner, but then you go and read that article that was written by a former Florida State D-back that was, um, that's worked with him, and like, apparently the kid was the best defensive player in his county, but, and he was a two-star, and probably because he's 5'9", and his, the kid who played across from, from him is a huge recruit. So like, even the kids who are on the lower end of, of these rating, of these rankings in, within our class, are hugely impressive players. They just, are missing like the one thing that keeps them from getting the attention of of uh, you know the the big schools around them. Like if you look at guess, Stephen Ishmael, who uh, whose commit commitment I think was supposed to be held till tomorrow, but uh, I think someone jumped the gun on announcing it today. Um, that kid, his coach, I read an article today was like mad that he didn't get more respect, and it was because he really didn't play the game with the with the website. Like he didn't go to scout camps or rival camps. He just played football. And his coach was like, this kid, if there's a five-star kid in Florida, like, this is one of them. He was that good. Uh, but he didn't, you know, deal with all this stuff, that the, the politicking that comes along with getting these ratings, and therefore they just put him at three and let him be, and he didn't get – I mean, he still got, like, 17 high BCS offers, so it wasn't like it really hurt him. The good teams find the good players. But that's a kid who, you know, he didn't do one thing that comes with trying to position yourself within the whole recruiting thing, which is so – slimy on so many levels, and he got hurt by it, but, you know, ends up being SU's game because George McDonald went down there and visited him every week for, like, two months. So, it's those kind of things, like those kind of kids that we're picking up. And it might not always pay off right on the, the little number that goes into the class ranking, but a lot of these kids seem like they might be able to step in right away, especially at the receiver position where, you know, we were very weak this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I mean, George McDonald should get a ton of credit. Him and Eric White have really like done a boatload of work um, out on the trail. And I mean, McDonald, as much as we kind of get wary about his play calling sometimes, I mean, on the recruiting trail, the guys just paid huge dividends. I mean, last year we saw it um, as you know Syracuse kind of pulled together um, a decent class, considering how many guys he lost after Marone and most of the staff departed. Um, you know, just a few weeks before uh, signing day. And I think, you know, it was a testament to McDonald to, to see, like, how he, you know, just completely, like, flew around the country and kind of grabbed a couple of kids using his connections, especially um, down in Georgia and Florida. And I think we're seeing that again. Dan, I know you uh, had tweeted out that uh, photo Earlier today, kind of the uh, recruiting map you put together. Um, what was the what was the final breakdown as of right now? Um, I mean, I'm looking at the recruits, but I know you've kind of had the numbers offhand as far as like where everybody came from. Um, all right. Well, the, the the big areas are the um, New York. We only took two kids. 
Uh, one was Nate Howard from Syracuse. Uh, one was Wayne Williams, who has been, I feel like we've been recruiting him for like seven years now, from Brooklyn. Um, we said Irv Phillips from Connecticut. Uh, and then the Philadelphia area was strong for us. Um, you have Rodney Williams, who's from South Jersey, uh, right across the bridge. You have Zaire Franklin and Jamal Custis, who are two of our better recruits, uh, both from the Philly or right outside Philly. And then K.J. Williams is our, you know, across-the-board four-star guy uh, up in Allentown. Um, so the Philly area was big. Um, out of the Northeast, that was the, the, the biggest concentration of guys. Then you have the whole, the Illinois, uh, mostly Chicago area, which was huge. Um, we really held that down. For a while, we, most of, we had most recruits from uh, Illinois out of any state. Um, I think Florida passed it. Um, but you have... Uh, five, four guys from the Chicago area, and then you also have Trevon Prater, who's from East St. Louis, which is in Illinois, um, right near the Missouri border. And then the last couple of weeks, we've just done so much work in the Miami area. Um, we have five kids from Miami, or you know, Miami, uh, you know, the general South Beach area. Um, Adley and Noisy, we just picked up a couple of weeks ago. He's a receiver tight end combo. Juwan Dowell is the corner that we talked about last uh, a couple minutes ago. Um, Alan Edward, big cornerback, quarterback, who ESPN has at four stars. Um, Antoine Cordy, another D-back, and then Stephen Ishmael. And then up in uh, the other side of Florida, we have uh, Cordell Hudson, another DB. Um, so six kids from Florida, which was our biggest state. Um, four from uh, Philadelphia or the general Philly area. Five from the Chicago area four from the Chicago area, one from Detroit, and then, you know, here and there, a couple others from the Northeast, and, you know, we have, like, one kid from a couple other southern states. But those three cities, Miami, Philly, and Chicago, were really the big uh, the big spots this year. Um, it wasn't a very strong year for New York City, and the, the, the stronger kids that came out, we knew we were out of pretty early, which, you know, it kind of stinks, but it allowed, it allowed us to really focus our efforts elsewhere. And it's, it's just more efficient that way. You don't have to have your, your staff flying all over the place when you can just go and hit, like, four or five kids by going to the Philly, New Jersey area or going down to South Beach. Um, and it, the last couple of weeks, all but maybe one or two kids that we've really seemed to be targeting, we've gotten. So the staff was really good at identifying, you know, the, the, the feasible players that we could get after, um, and they just kind of seemed to – locked down the guys they wanted, and now we're assuming that we get commitments tomorrow from Tate and Samuels, who's a, a defensive tackle from the Georgia area, and um, we're waiting on Denzel Ward tomorrow as well from Chicago. He's a six-foot-eight offensive tackle. Those two are pretty much from everything you could refine on the Internet. They're more or less going to commit tomorrow. It's just a matter of waiting for their ceremonies. Uh, those are the two that are left open. The rest all seem to be very solid verbals, um, and there don't seem to be any real surprises on the on the uh, horizon, not on wood. So uh, it should be a fun one tomorrow. Not too much in, in the way of, uh, of drama like we've had in a couple of years uh, in the past, but just a really solid group of kids, um, and credit to the staff and credit to a lot of the guys, A.J. Lawn from uh, Tennessee and Thayer Franklin especially, who were both pretty early commits and, and made it their, like, mission the last couple of months to really help out the staff in recruiting. And if you just follow them on Twitter, you know all the work they do as well. So uh, it's been really impressive, and, and it's it's great to see for, uh, you know, any of you fans who follow this stuff, um, whether or not that's healthy. Uh, it's a little easier when your staff seems to know what they're doing and have a really good idea of how they want to attack this. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point with the kids. Um, and we saw this last year, too. I think before uh, the staff kind of turned over, and that was the kids are bringing in now are are not just you know quality athletes, quality students, but they're guys who really believe in, in the program, they believe the program is back, and and they're willing to you know kind of hit the ground running um, via social media um, with you know friends of theirs and and people that they know are targets and really kind of hitting them up and trying to uh, you know bring them in the fold. I mean, looking through the rankings right now. Um, so 20, uh, 24-7 sports has this uh, 50th, which I actually think is, is fantastic. I think for me, if, if this program can, can finish 
top 50. I think that's a huge, huge step forward. Um, I know that, that, that there's definitely been some detractors um, for us lately. Um, I've seen... So as part of the uh, last week's, uh, you know, Syracuse hit parade, seeing that, that even people were, were, you know, pounding on us in, in terms of recruiting. We won't even get into what happened last week, but... Well, but I'll just say that... It didn't even really hurt us. I mean, we picked up four kids from... Georgia or Florida, the, I mean, obviously being at the Duke game helped, but, like, we picked up all those kids from that exact area um, with and Alabama, too, um, this week. <laughs> like, we picked up five kids from the soft-nosed, snowed-in area. Uh, I guess it probably didn't snow in Miami, but um, obviously they didn't take too much offense to it, or Schaefer just was able to do a really solid mea culpa when he went on his visits because – there was no one that I think we really missed out on because of that. Yeah, and right now I'm looking at the numbers where, uh, it's funny, I see all these articles written about how great use class is, and as good as it is, I mean, almost every service as us is having a better class right now. And it's funny you don't see any, any notes about, you know, Syracuse Hall's in great class. I mean, looking through the numbers, there's only one like, non-power conference team ahead of us right now, and that's USF. And even then, USF still is, like, 43rd, and they're not, like, that much ahead of us. So, for me, no, like, they, I don't know. I, I, I just consider this a win, like, in every sense of the word. It's, it's odd that, that nobody's really grasping onto the narrative for us. Yeah, it, it, USF has a built-in advantage of being a school that can get a lot of kids in, and they're from South Florida, so it's an easy... If any kids are, are uh, you know, worried about moving far away from home or they have great issues, USF is a pretty easy spot for them. But good on them for landing in the class after the horrific year they had. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's definite hurdles to recruiting at SU, and I'm not sure where the feeling for Syracuse is, is in terms of recruiting. Um, a lot of people say, you know, oh, when are we going to break back into the top 25? Like, there are more than 25 really good football programs uh, in the country. So that might be a little ambitious um, to say that we should get back there immediately. But if we're hanging around like the 30 to 40 range every year, I think that's a pretty good place to be, especially for a very cold city in upstate New York that has pretty, you know, not the hardest, but pretty decent academic, you know, restrictions in terms of who they bring in. It's not a bad, and, and getting to 50 this year is a pretty, you know, solid. Um, a pretty solid place uh, for the staff having their first full year together. Uh, and not losing any of the staff is huge, too. That was the other thing. We didn't lose a coach this year, uh, at least that, that we know of already so far. Um, so pretty good job of, A, keeping the pots together, and, B, uh, you brought up Penn State before. That should have been a huge thing. Um, but the only get kid that we ended up losing to Penn State was Jason Tabinda, uh, um, and that was a week ago. So that wasn't even, like, a huge thing down the stretch. Uh, you would have thought James Franklin could have been um, a really dangerous guy coming in here late in the in the in the uh, process, but our staff really did a great job of holding on to those kids, uh, whether it's T.J. Williams or Zaire Franklin. They, they, they didn't really ever seem to waver. So it's been a you know hasn't been the most uh, tumultuous recruiting uh, week or, or month here, but it you know everyone seems to be in board on board to sign tomorrow. So it, it's. It's good. It's a good thing. Uh, I, I've traded the excitement that came with, like, the Deion Dodgins recruitment or the uh, a couple other kids in the last couple of years who were down to the wire than, than you know, not have as a class as we do this year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be kind of the, uh, at least hopefully the lasting image of this class, um, at least going into the next recruiting season, uh, which is, you know, we're not losing kids on late flips. We're not losing kids to, to quote-unquote, better schools. We're, we're building strong classes to start and then fortifying them at the end and keeping everybody in the fold. And to me, um, you know, that really is kind of all, all that we can ask for these kids until they, you know, hit the field, in which case we hope their lasting legacy is more wins than the class before. But I think that's actually a realistic goal now, you know, year over year. I mean... But like we we've harped on over and over again, this is 
we've now had two straight years of, of going to bowls, two straight years of winning bowl games, two straight years of finishing with more wins than losses. Um, so, and now three of the last four, we've had that. So to me, this is, this should be the turning point. We have now the talent in the bowls. It seems like everyone believes in Schaefer, probably even more so than they believed in Marone. And it seems like the kids genuinely like this staff, while I'd say most of the old staff, it was, they had respect for Marone and Hackett and obviously Schaefer when he was defensive coordinator. But I'd say in terms of, in terms of actually, you know, loving the staff as people and really, you know, wanting to go out there and do their best for them and feeling a personal attachment to those, to those individuals on the coaching staff, I'd say that this one definitely more so than, than we've had previously. Yeah, I think I think where we lose things with Marone is that if there is a really good New York City class, like there there were uh, Marone's like first and second full classes where we got Brandon Reddish and originally Wayne Williams and uh, a couple other kids from down that way, I think Marone will probably probably have done better there. But ultimately, we're not going to build a successful program on New York City alone. So if we trade in a little bit of the, you know, I'm from the Bronx and I used to run up the steps at Yankee Stadium panache for George McDonald's ability to at least end the door with any kid in, in Miami um, and Schaefer's big connections with the Midwest, as, as we've seen this year with all the kids that we have in the Chicago area, um, I think that's a fair trade to make. And I think Syracuse has enough of those kids from New York now where – we can at, we'll still at least be able to compete there when there are kids that we can get. Um, I don't know if we'll ever work out because there seems to be a defensive lineman there every year now that we, you know, that's a five star. And I don't know if we'll get those kids because they all seem to think that they, you know, their best course of action is going to a huge program and then, you know, not playing that much, um, which is fine, good for them. But uh, I think with the kids like a reddish or a, you know, a three or four star kid like that who doesn't have quite the offers that, uh, you know, Ishaq Williams did or Jerron Jones from Rochester did, I think Schaefer will be okay then. Yeah, I mean, I know we talked about it last summer, and it was interesting. I feel like you and I were saying, hey, like, we really need to, um, you know, kind of build a wall around New York. And now I feel like we don't have that tact at all, and I feel like it's working better. I mean, I feel like... BC's build a wall around Massachusetts thing like works all well and good, but there's really not a whole lot of players coming out of Massachusetts. And at the end of the day, like their recruiting rankings have dropped pretty steadily. I mean, they're still they still have a slightly better class than we do in some polls and in others they have slightly worse. But for BC, you know, like that strategy only gets you so far. And I feel like for us, like we're actually going out there and instead, like. You know, we only grabbed the like, two guys from New York this year, and we're, we're not, like, we understand, like, there's just certain battles we can't win um, in New York State. As long as, I think as long as we're locking down kids in the Syracuse area um, and playing the local card there, and then, you know, if we're doing what we're doing in Illinois, we're doing what we're doing in Florida and Georgia, I think we're going to be fine. Yeah, hopefully, the one place I think that people have expressed concern about that Hopefully the staff starts to get into more, um, even though I'm not sure the connections that we have there is, is New Jersey, um, which does have very solid talent in a very small area where you can get around. And if we can start getting into some of those big schools, the Don Bostos or the, the other prep schools like that, um, that'd be nice, uh, especially because Rutgers has been taking such a big hit recently. Like if you haven't followed Rutgers, um, recruiting, like, cycle, like, this entire cycle, they came out, like, guns a-blazing back before they fired half their staff, and they had, like, a top-20 class for a while, and now they're down around where we are, and it's because they've had, like, I think, 14 decommitments uh, so far this year, which is an unbelievable number to have, like, 14 different kids verbal to you and then completely drop you off. Um, so hopefully we can help uh, in 2015 we can start picking up uh, you know, filling some of those holes where they are. And their class isn't even as good as it's ranked. Because if you look at a lot of those kids, their only other offers are like one double A's or like Florida International. So um, I think uh, that's like the one place where for whatever reason, since 
Uh, even Marone never really gained a foothold there. Um, Jersey's a very talent. It's not, you know, the best state for football by any means, but it's very uh, dense in terms of a lot of good players in a small, you know, area, um, and it's nearby. Uh, you know, a lot of those North Jersey kids can get here in four hours. Um, so hopefully they start doing better there, but I don't think it's, you know, the end of the world. And, and considering we've done so well in Philly, there's no reason why we can't do well in Jersey. Well, to me, I mean, I just think that we, I think we did, we used to do really, really well in Jersey, you know, pre, like, Rutgers resurgence. Um, and then obviously, like, a lot of that fell off and has stayed kind of fallen off in the last decade or so. Um, I'm not necessarily sold we can get back into Jersey, but that's not because of our own inabilities. It's because um, as much as Rutgers thought that they were upgrading their station on life by going to the Big Ten, um, what they didn't realize was they were giving, um, and, and Maryland's going to see more of this too, um, they didn't realize that they were giving um, the, the, you know, Big Ten powers like Michigan and Ohio State and to a point Wisconsin and Michigan State as well, Nebraska, bridges to D.C. and the New Jersey and New York City areas. Uh, and that's where I think, um, you know, those schools in the long run, it's not because they can't spend the money, although they both broke athletic departments, that they can't spend the money to compete. It's that they they have taken away their competitive advantage um, in those areas, and I think that's where you're going to see Rutgers just plummet as a program um, and, you know, probably hang around like the four to five, like four to five win like cap for a little while just because, you know, Flood doesn't seem like he's, he's recruiting at, at the same rate that the previous regime did. And, um, and, you know, everything just seems like it's coming undone. And I don't, in, in that Big Ten East, I don't really see Rutgers ever uh, being able to, to rise up past like maybe fourth place just because of like raw talent at the top of that division. I mean, they're starting out behind Ohio State, Michigan State, Penn State, and Michigan every single year, like, to start. And that, that, that that's the high-water mark is, is probably fifth. So, so to me, I don't know. I, I, it's not even hate on them too much. It's just to say, like, you've put yourself in this position, and now you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, that, this is not a good year. Like, as all the, you know, it, it probably wasn't the best year for SU to transition to the ACC coming off of a coaching change. But – you know, Schaefer did a really good job this season. Rutgers is in is kind of turmoil. I mean, they had to lay off a bunch of their staff. They ended up making a really good hire with Man with uh, not Mancino. Okay, I feel bad now. Um, uh, Fridgen, uh, which I thought was a pretty inspired hire on their part, and it almost kind of streams of watch your back flood a little bit because you know people were calling for his head this year, and now they go out and hire a formerly very successful head coach who's from the you know, East Coast. Um, but, you know, to lose half your staff mid-year and to lose so many commitments and to have to pitch up so many kids who aren't quite, you know, the caliber of recruit that they've been uh, getting in the last couple of years, a lot of whom haven't panned out at all, um, hence why they're leading running back as a walk-on this year. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a rough time to be moving into a much tougher league than what they were in this year. Um, especially in that division, they're just they're just set up for failure right now. As we do like it. So uh, with that, um, this will be going up tomorrow morning. I'll make sure it's up before commitments start rolling in. But uh, for those who want to hear us talk about some recruits, um, this was your spot, obviously. And all day we'll be having um, plenty of uh, articles about each and every kid who signed on the dotted line for Syracuse. Um, but that marks halftime. And with that, talking about drinks. Always a good time. What do you got, Dan? Uh, just opening up my app. Um, well, I start off, uh, I tweeted at you before the Super Bowl. I picked up a four-pack of uh, New England Brewing's uh, Nandibot, which is a double IPA. Really good. I've had it before, so it wasn't anything brand new for me. But uh, we've talked about that on the podcast before because it's you know, had rave reviews from a lot of the big beer websites. Um, really delicious. And I'm not even a huge IPA guy, but, you know, I, when I'm in the mood for them, I do enjoy them. And it's, it's so 
fully flavored that uh, it's a you know, really great beer. Definitely wouldn't recommend trying to session it during the Super Bowl, but if you're just looking to have like one or two pops, Gandhi Butt's uh, pretty good if you can find it if you're uh, from around the New England area. Um, and I know we've talked, I'll try to send you, a, I have to go back to that liquor store and see if uh, if I can find another four-pack. I think they had a bunch of them there, so see if I can send some of those over to you. Much appreciated. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's worth it. They're quite good. Um, I also had uh, the same place when I was buying that. Uh, that place, they for whatever for whatever reason, they uh, tend to have specials on beers that are like a season behind where they're trying to get rid of them. So you can end up getting like right now you can just end up getting some pretty good fall beers for real cheap. So I picked up um, Polliner's. Uh, they had a, a you know fall Oktoberfest pack. So a little bit unseasonable, but I tried their Oktoberfest Marzen, Marzen which was really delicious, like uh, super, uh, you know, really full-bodied, you know, Oktoberfest flavor, um, but also really refreshing. It didn't really, like, weigh you down too much. Um, so that was actually one of the better Oktoberfests I've had this year, even though it's now February and not October, but still uh, still quite good. Um, and then I also had Widmer Brothers uh, Vanilla, Vanilla Barrel-Aged Bourbon 13, uh, which was, you know, definitely had that really strong bourbon beer flavor. Um said like eleven percent too and you could you could tell. But uh quite good. Nice. That'll definitely hopefully get to try Gandhi Bot sooner rather than later. But on this end, uh I decided to commemorate the Super Bowl with uh beers from Washington State and Colorado State. Which was a fun little exercise. Uh, so for Washington, I went with uh, Yale Force IPA from Scuttlebutt Brewing, which is uh, one of Sean's favorites, so he's more prone to the brown ale and stouts and all the other stuff from them. You know, he's not an IPA guy. And then uh, from Great Divide in Colorado, I uh, went with uh, Nomad Pilsner just because had a, like, not exactly pro-craft beer crowd but wanted to try to do something that was both delicious and Nomad was, um, while also um, playing to folks who don't want to drink 7%, 8% IPAs. So that was my Super Bowl also. What was that, Dan? Very nice. Yeah, that was an interesting touch. I know back east it's kind of difficult to get uh, any Washington State beers outside of, like, Red Hook. Yeah, that's something I've seen a lot of. I've, I, I thought about doing the same thing this year, but I... Ended up running real late, so I had to just kind of grab whatever was there, uh, which worked out. They got two really, um, and they weren't all labeled like at the big liquor store where it has it by state. But uh, yeah, nice, nice, uh, nice activity at least. And congrats to any Seahawks fans who are listening. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I also grabbed a uh, I beat you IPA from McKellar. Uh, very malty, so if you're into maltier IPAs rather than the hop bombs that I tend to drink. Uh, could be worth your while. Also got to enjoy Well, been drinking Lagunitas Sucks for um, a good deal of time. Uh, Craftsman Brewing out here, uh, they have their Poppy Field Pale Ale, which is uh, very understated and unfortunately not available in a ton of places, but whenever I uh, find it, usually at this bar called Misfit uh, down here in Santa Monica, usually make sure to grab it. And another beer, um, that I'd recommend everybody uh, gets. Uh, Stone's new uh, Mass Burning Roses. Uh, one of uh, Stone's employees, unfortunately, uh, passed away in a workplace accident last year. Uh, so as a tribute to him, they uh, put together this beer. Uh, it's a, a smoked Saison, which, let me tell you, is a very interesting uh, take on the style, uh, one that I would actually recommend to anyone. Uh, Dan, they definitely have these around you if you, if you happen to see it in the store. I actually have seen it. I didn't pick it up, but I consider it. So I might, I might not some I go. Yeah, it's definitely... It, it's really, like, instead of, like, that uh, that fruity kind of... And sometimes tart and you'll get to a Saison. This is, like, a... Like they really do a nice job with the smokiness on this. It's, it's a unique beer. I'll, I'll say that much. Very cool. Yep. All right, and with that, uh, basketball. I didn't think this was going to be, like, a less-than-positive uh, 
recap, but <laughs> but after yesterday's game, um, I'm not like entirely thrilled <laughs> with with the product we saw on the court. Uh, I you know I have trouble getting too worked up um, about any win as we I feel like I've said after every half the wins this year. Um, obviously the Duke game was still so fresh that I, it's hard to come down from that because that was such a great game. Um, and obviously it would have been devastating if we had lost it, but uh, just such an amazing, well-played basketball game and very different from a lot of the games we've played this year because it was so up and down and Syracuse kind of showed that they could, you know, run with a team that, that plays the way Duke does as opposed to the more slow style that we've been accustomed to this year, which was nice. Um, Notre Dame, like, I thought the team, just, four, four starters played pretty poorly, um, which, you know, you don't expect all those guys to be so cold. But that considered, uh, you know, you came away with a decent win. We put it away at the end. It's pretty much the model that we've been working at the whole season, whether or not it's the most uh, pretty thing on the court. Uh, it, you know, we, we ended, it worked out. So not going to get too worried about it. Um, but thank God for Trevor Cooney because that was just an unbelievable performance. Really amazing. Well, he's just great at, like, I mean, we've had others. Like, I feel like he reminds me most of James Sutherland in that regard, where there's just games. I mean, Sutherland had a little bit more size, a little bit more of the, you know, presence, I'd say, on the boards. But um, for me, like, you know, Cooney is similar in the fact that sometimes he'll just go off. And, I mean, last night, every single one of those points were needed because just everybody was ice cold. And to see him just be able to carry the team on his back is really encouraging. And I, I mean, I unfortunately didn't get to watch because the game was over before I even left work. But I was following along with everyone in the comments and and on Twitter. I saw the, the excitement, the panic, the excitement again, and then the more panic. It's a lot more nerve-wracking when you're not watching it unfold than you're just making assumptions. Uh, but yeah, I... Uh, I I can't really complain about the undefeated number one team in the nation too much, but at the same time, like I just I worry about what happens to them on short rest. It just seems like you know CJ in particular just like doesn't always look too great on on just a few days rest. And like come tournament time, I just that projects poorly. And, you know yeah. maybe something changes. But that, that to me just, just doesn't say anything good about this team and its conditioning. I thought about that too. Um, that you know, this is kind of a situation where um, that's going to be that we're going to face in the tournament. But um, you know, we we do have a couple weeks like that down the stretch, and then we have the ACC tournament, which shouldn't matter too much in terms of how we end up. Um, hopefully we don't need to like win it or go too deep to secure the uh, to secure the you know, number one seed in the East, but you never know. But um, hopefully those those you know little stretches and, and that the ACC will help prepare for the NCAA. Um, but and then every team also faces it there. So obviously Notre Dame was in a similar situation, despite the uh, protest uh, protestations from. Some people in the comments who said that because Notre Dame played BC, it shouldn't matter. Um, they did play an overtime game the same day we did, so they should have been in a similar state, which is a bit disconcerting. But I'll wait until uh, I'll wait until conference tournament time to really, you know, see if if I'm getting worried. Um, and and you know, we have a couple more quick turnaround stretches before the year's up, so hopefully they get in better better conditions and. Can learn to play through that, you know, that tiring type of type of game. And there was also the natural letdown of not being in front of 35,000 people and the dome. I, I don't know how much of the game you have to see at all. The dome was silent the whole time, so I'm sure it was kind of a hangover game for everyone. It seemed like. I mean, and, and that's always a bummer to see. I mean, I, we've all been there, unfortunately. Like when the Dome comes off like a really just like huge game. and It's not just this program, but I know like for all of us that kind of hyper-follow Syracuse, it 
feels like it's just this program that, like, following a big win, the next step is either, like, a shocking loss or just, like, this sort of, this, like, lackadaisical effort, and then that goes to, like, the crowd, too. So I guess, I mean, it's good we came away with a win, um, and I think it's good for us that we have a lot of time to rest up for Clemson. Um, and I know that, like, the thing is, this game, I mean, it's another home game, which I think is positive for us, but when you look at the rest of the schedule, like, I'd much rather we didn't have so many home games in a row, considering how many road games we have to end the season. Now, what was the exact, con- and sorry for not looking this up, what was the exact comment from Jay Williams during the game yesterday? Because I saw two conflicting ones from people, and I wanted to get it straight about what he actually said. In, re- in reference to the Duke game? Well, when he was talking about Syracuse not facing, like, the top, like, beating up on the, on the bottom half of the ACC. Oh, I, I don't remember exactly what he said. It was, like, a weird fleeting comment. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was a Jay Williams. Jay Williams might be the worst person on ESPN. Like, and I'm not even being saying that because he's a, the guy who's not just du jour, but he, he literally might be the worst person on ESPN, all things considered. So I don't try to take him too seriously. Um, but I don't know. He the, the ACC doesn't have that many great teams, and we've already beaten Duke and Pitt and UNC. Um, the only team we haven't played at the top is Virginia. So I don't know really what he meant, like, We've played a pretty good sample of the league. We played Wake, who's going to be in the top half. Like, we played most of the better teams in the conference. So I really don't know what his point was. And he didn't seem to really have one. Because, again, it's Jay Williams. He's dumb. Yeah, it, it is surprising to see, like, those kind of opinions. I mean, if you get to 22-0, and 0, it's, it's, there's very few teams that can that can get through – 22 games without facing a formidable opponent, and especially for a team in the ACC, it's impossible to get through that many games without facing a formidable opponent. So I I don't really understand the comments, but at the same time, I do understand the the, the smarter take on it, which is we really haven't been to a tough road environment yet. Um, And as tough as Wake was, and that was a close game, I... uh, I don't necessarily think that we've been tested on the road uh, quite yet. I think we've we've done really well in neutral spots. Um, I'd say Madison Square Garden on TV looked like it was partial towards St. John's, but I know from your opinion, Dan, and most others, um, outside of that you know small bottom section, it was pretty much all SU. Um, so I'm curious to see how this team deals with uh, a hostile road environment. And, uh, you know, Pitt kind of being, being, to me, the most hostile of all. I know Cameron um, indoors is is quite the test, but I I just think that given the fact that, you know, Pitt's been our house of horrors on the road for years, I'm not really looking forward to that one. No, I think if we get a split between Cameron and and the Pete, I'll be thrilled. Now, the one team that, like, I'm getting really concerned about, and uh, I brought this up in the roundtable, it's going to be going up on Thursday, is uh, UVA, who, if you look at their schedule, I mean, that team might, that team could could beat us on the road. I'm not really, like, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened come March 1st. But I don't necessarily think they're a better team than we are. But yet, because of how their schedule lays out, like, they could, they could end up with a better record than us or win the conference be a tiebreaker against us, like, with relative ease. And that's, I think, to me, a little disconcerting. Yeah, I was absolutely talking about this to someone today. UVA is definitely the, the – they're not the best, second-best team. I think Duke is going to end up being the pretty clear number one uh, – probably number two. I, I think we'll hang on to the number one team, at least in terms of, like, who's absolutely the best. The UVA schedule is so easy down the stretch. Not to now do this after knocking Jay Williams for doing this, but literally they kind of cleared out all of the really tough matchups uh, aside from ours. Um, so even if we beat them head to head, I feel like they they do have they do have it laid out where they could make some make a move here for the top of the league. Um, I don't think they will. Just I, I'm not 
I think they're good. I'm not completely sold that they're a top, you know, top tier team and a top conference. I think they're probably the best of the of the rest. But uh, and and because of that, I think they'll end up dropping a game they probably shouldn't. But you know, it, on by on paper, like there's not another game that they. Uh, maybe we pro- will probably be favored when we play at UVA, but aside from that, that's probably the only game where they'll they'll be an underdog, and they might even be like even there, because it is. Um, yeah, and I actually think UVA, I think UVA could be a top ten team to be honest. By the time we get down there, which says a lot of good about the ACC. I mean, I think at that point we could potentially have, you know, three teams in the top ten um, at the conference, but at the same time, like that. It is nerve-wracking. I know at the end of the day, winning a conference doesn't really matter through that last year. Um, but at the same time, like, you can't help but, but think there's unfinished business if we don't win the conference in our first year. No, I really want to so long since UVA won it. I really want to win the league. Like, I never really cared all that much about winning the Big East. It was cool when we did it a couple times, but it wasn't the end of the world if we didn't. But winning the ACC in year one would be a pretty solid statement. And it's kind of the same significance of winning that Duke game the other night. It didn't really mean, you know, terribly much for, like, whether or not we're going to be whatever. Like, it was big, but it wasn't – I don't think it defined our season. It just happened to be a really good team. Uh, I think it doesn't mean our team is, you know, any better or worse. We knew we were good. Um, But just winning that first time against Duke as league rivals just has such – um, it's just such a, you know, it's, it's just such a statement to the rest of the league. And obviously you can see that by seeing how annoyed they are with it. So uh, people who were like never root for Duke were rooting for Duke just because they don't want to see the new guys come in and push everyone around. So winning the league would be a, an extension of that, which I'm all for. I think we should just go for it. And then, you know, when we see one, then we'll be like, all right, well, we'll win it when we win it. But now I, I – really want to take it home this year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, I think. It's funny, somebody brought it up in the comments today, I apologize in advance because I forgot who, um, was saying that the issue that we have with our ATC brethren is that up north, um, you know, if we're going to talk shit, we talk shit to your face. And down south, you know, there's, there's that southern hospitality, like, like, but, you know, bless their heart type, like, talking about you behind your back stuff that, like, they're used to. So it's it's not necessarily that we're any more obnoxious than, than what they're used to. It's just that we'll come out and say we're superior while they'll just talk about it behind closed doors. And I found that to be an interesting take. And, like, for my time, like, the time I spent down uh, south, especially North Carolina, like, I, I do feel like that's the case, and you can tell me if I'm wrong there, Dan. Uh, I would agree. I mean, we're not very shy. <laughs> if you've ever been to an SU game, Syracuse fans don't ever feel like they're on the road. Um, a, because there's so many of them everywhere, and B, because they just don't act like it. Like, we generally act like we're the home team, whether or not we are the home team, or even near being the home team. See the Maryland game this year. <laughs> has case in point. Yeah, it's we're not general. I mean, I wouldn't say we're always bad guests, but we are going to root for our team just voraciously in you know the Wachovia Center as we are in the in the Dome or MSG or anywhere else. It doesn't make that much of a difference. So where like some fans might not you know test the waters of what they can do because they're not at home. Syracuse fans just do it. They just don't care. <laughs> and I guess to close out, um, I know we talked about the Final Four last week, but um, I think, you know, things have shaken up a bit. We definitely have, you know, a changed environment this week versus last week. So, Dan, looking at things now, who's your likely Final Four? I mean, I'm assuming that Arizona and Syracuse are, are two of those teams, and who kind of floats around the rest of those spots? Um, uh, Syracuse, uh, I'll put in there. Arizona, I'm a little bit speculative because of the Brandon Ashley injury, which I think hurts them a lot. 
Um, I still think they'll win the Pac-12 going away, and I think they're the best team, and I think they're a very good Final Four bet, but I'm not as sold on it as I was a couple days ago. Um, I really like Kansas. Uh, they're just playing really, really well. Um, and, I mean, Wiggins had didn't have a great game today, but he, he you know, gets his points. Embiid is just another, just a freak that no one else has. Like, you, no one else has a player that stacked up with Joel Embiid. He's just a, a matchup nightmare for a lot of people, and he seems to be just only getting better. Um, and he has more good games than not. Uh, and then, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put Arizona there until I see them play without Ashley. So I'll go Syracuse, Kansas, Florida, who should get a nice jump with jump start with uh, Chris Walker back from his dumb suspension thing. And then I'll go Duke, just because they were so impressive against us. And if they're going to play offense like that, not many teams besides Syracuse are going to beat them. I'm actually looking at bracketology for Joel Inardi right now, and he has Duke in our bracket, which I am not a fan of. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But I thought it was a rule, wasn't it part of the rule that you had to place the top three teams from a conference in different brackets? That sounds right, but what was Marquette's seed last year? Uh, oh, three? Or what? They were the... They were the three seed. We were the four seed. Georgetown was a two, and Louisville... Oh, yeah, no, we were the fourth team, so... So it's understandable how that happened. I don't know. The, the rules are so strange, and they don't seem to yeah. matter all the time. Mildly applicable at times. Yeah. Yeah, um... For me, I mean, Michigan is in our bracket predict, projection right now, too, which, no, not a fan. So I, I still believe in Arizona. Um, I think that they I think that they can easily get to an Elite Eight um, against most, and I don't even understand what the hell, not to hang Lenardi. It's just looking at, like, the bracket he put together. Arizona gets to face, like, Ohio State, probably, like, Iowa. And then, like, they're only really tested versus either, like, Villanova or San Diego State in the Elite Eight. Yeah, what? Yeah, like a... That's pretty much a cakewalk. Yeah, every bracket... I feel like most years I'm like, oh, that would be such an easy draw. Let's do that. This year I haven't seen one bracket that I've been, like, happy about. Every... There's always one team that just kind of frightens me. Somewhere along the way, and I guess that that's probably more realistic. But I feel like in years past, I've always felt like pretty good about these bracets as they've come out and they've gotten closer. And then it ends up being, you know, we end up getting a harder road or we lose our center, um, one of the two. But this year, like last year, I didn't really want to play Indiana by any means, but you know, we ended up tooling on them, so it didn't matter. But uh, it, it seems like this year I've just been like very unhappy with all these brackets that have come out because there's always seems like one team like, yeah, they'll hit a thousand threes. Well, yeah, it's like weird because I'm looking at like, you know, Arizona gets like a really like joke of a like draw and like Lenardi still has them as the number one overall seed. Meanwhile, like we've got a potential matchup with like Wisconsin in the Sweet 16. There's no thank you. <laughs> and then like potentially Duke or Michigan in the Elite Eight. But moving on from that, um, I still buy Syracuse and Arizona. And then beyond that, um, Florida is in the conversation, though I have to say I think I'm going to go with Michigan and Duke as those other two. Um, I just think Michigan's been playing absolutely lights out. Big Ten, on the other hand, has been playing poorly. Um, the free falls from Wisconsin and Ohio State in particular um, but Michigan and Duke just seem like... I mean, Duke is really clicking. Um, but, you know, I was... I've talked to a bunch of people about this. They really, And we said this last week, too. There really are um, just a slew of teams that can that can make the Final Four this year. I mean, SU might be a bit um, above the fray right now, especially with Arizona um, losing Ashley. But beyond that, like, you know, there's just... Nobody's safe, and, and it's really going to be more than probably any year in recent memory, just matchup-based, where you're looking at 16, like, fairly evenly matched teams in the top 
like in those top four lines, and then it just really depends on who gets matched up with whom and if they can get past them based on their respective strengths and weaknesses. I don't. I normally think that there are at least a couple cakewalks with 16 games. I just don't think that's going to be the case this year at all. Yeah, I tend to agree. It just seems like there's there's uh, every team seems to have some something they do well that that'll scare you. Like there are very few teams where I've just let, aside from Indiana because Tom Crean, um, <laughs> that like I I could them not find a way where they could beat us. Not that doesn't mean I think I'd pitch against us against most teams, but like almost every team seems to have some weapon that is at least a bit frightening for for Syracuse. Um, but generally, I just think we have enough talent, and we've just been so good that I'm, I, I think we'll pull ahead of any game, but I wouldn't be terribly shocked by, by most things from tournament time. Eric, and I guess to close out, Dan, top three teams you would not want to face in the NCAA tournament? Um, Duke. Don't really want to face them again in the ACC, but we're going to. Uh, but yep. there's just so... That, like that three-point shooting, as crazy as that was, that was 0.4% above their season average. Like, it was crazy, but it wasn't that crazy. <laughs> like, that was what they do every game. They just probably don't shoot 35 times from three. Um, so they're one. Uh, and then I'll say um, Michigan's pretty scary just because of the shooting. Stout's just seems like a guy who's built to, to shred the zone. Um, and obviously they beat us last year, although di- very different team. Um, and then Creighton. Same thing. as They're like a slightly less scary Duke, but shooting is just absurd. Yeah, I think for me, number one's Creighton. They're terrifying. Uh <laughs> And then, despite the fact that I would definitely list Duke, Pitt, and UVA um, here, I, I'll, I'll try to, to look outside of the ACC. Um, I'm going to say beyond Creighton, uh, Wisconsin, despite the uh, drop-off lately, definitely uh, definitely a bit of a concern. And then, uh, and then yeah, I'll probably go with Michigan, uh, just because... I think that a lot of what they did last year can be replicated this year, and um, I think we play a similar style of basketball to what we did last year as today. Obviously, we didn't really like that result. Um, it's no given. I think that we actually match up better with them this year, but um, it's definitely one of those things where I, I just wouldn't want to face them. I, and then, like I said, I think that they, they've really kind of turned it around um, mid-season in a way that was, you know, unexpected at the time and now kind of just seems like it totally makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very fair. All right, so with that, while the condescending British woman is yelling in my ear, I think we'll we'll wrap up there. So uh, thanks for taking the time tonight, Dan. Always appreciate it. Yes, have fun uh, writing up about your your recruits. I know I'll be up uh, pretty late tonight putting stuff together for the people. (laughs) So everyone will appreciate your hard work and everyone's hard work tomorrow. But uh, for Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here on the Troy News Absolute Magician Podcast Network, I'm John, that's Dan. Happy National Signing Day, everyone. Go Orange. Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. 
And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. <laughs> 